This podcast is brought to you by Datomics. There are nearly 100 data providers in your DSP, but only Datomics can enable marketers to target audiences in cookie-less environments with scale and accuracy. Discover how to reach inventory that your competitors are missing. Learn more about our game-changing technology at datomics.com slash cookie-less. That's D-A-T-O-N-I-C-S dot com slash cookie-less. Welcome to the Architecture Podcast. I'm Ari Paparo. I'm joined today by my co-host, Eric Franchi, and Lauren Wetzel, the COO of InfoSum. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Happy 2024. It's not the end of January, so I'm allowed to say it. <laughs> I thought it was January 7th was the limit where you're not allowed to say it anymore. Can't say it. Can't say it. Well, we're recording on January 24th. Um, so <laughs> we're excited to get into uh, what's up with InfoSum, um, the clean room space, the latest news about Habu and a bunch of other stuff, as well as some great news this week. First, some housekeeping. Uh, I want to remind everyone to try out our ChatGPT on the ChatGPT store. We've gotten some fun feedback. Someone was asking it uh, whether it was appropriate for a 50-year-old man to like Taylor Swift. I think that was a personal dig at me. But whatever, I'm a Swifty. I'm not embarrassed about it. And secondly, uh, I me. want to point out there was a there was a pretty interesting product announcement from Index Exchange, and I did an interview with Andrew Casali about it, so you could get the latest on their new product. Which this was not a paid promotion. I was just kind of pretty interested in what they're doing around curation. That is a free video on Architecture TV until next week, after which it will be a member only exclusive. All right, let's jump in. Lauren, what's going on in clean rooms? What's the latest and greatest? A lot. I would say for me personally, I would say not much has changed in terms of my passion or interest or excitement or belief that, you know, InfoSum and data collaboration infrastructure more broadly, that it was going to help re-architect the way that data is utilized in modern marketing. That's always been the ambition. And so whether when I bought the product while well, I was in at t at Xander in 2019, when invested in InfoSum and then ultimately joined the time, I know you know that story because you had Brian on the podcast before. I just always thought it was going to be a critical piece of infrastructure. And if anything, when you look at and take a couple steps back at market trends in 2024, I think those trends are only, you know, fueling the rapid adoption and the success and the performance that we're seeing. And so I think from that lens, if you look at some of the market trends, you can point to cookie deprecation and expanding privacy framework. That's going to force businesses to refine data practices, whether people have accepted it or still in disbelief or going through whatever phase of mourning that they are in. And then two categories in particular, you see connected television advertising, spending, surpassing previous expectations. Connected television advertising, advanced advertising, more broadly, that's always been kind of our pioneer adopters of our technology, continues to launch new products in market. We can get into that. That's an exciting area. And then retail media and commerce media more broadly is poised to become the most important digital advertising medium. And so it's not a podcast in our space without talking about it, but that continues to be a really hot vertical for us. There's a lot of innovation in there, not just in activation and measurement, but in insight. And I think the last trend, which is important and important into the context of how InfoSum fits into sort of this broader 
you know, moniker that, you know, whether I love it or I hate it, data clean room that we kind of sit under. Marketers are building composable solution, which is all just about combining the best of breed offerings and their own custom technology. And I think that plays really nicely into how we fit in. It's driving the need for true data clean room technology that's objective, that's agnostic, and that's easily integrated. And so when you hear composable, really what that's about is just partner ecosystems and pre-built ecosystems and not having to rip and replace that. It's about native integrations continuing to become an even stronger selling point. And so that neutrality, being agnostic, and whether that's where data lives and is stored in terms of what identity you need to utilize, in terms of, frankly, where you want to activate, those are all key components. And Infosom, as an independent player in sort of this broader data cleanroom landscape, I think more than ever is just going to really help us be successful in 2024. In 2023, we went from strength to strength. We continue to pull on more partners. We see a surge in growth in the U.S. This is across all verticals. Again, CTV retail, CPG, financial services. For us, it's just been a really exciting start to the year. And I think you'll get into this, but obviously some acquisitions in the space have also, you know, caused people's ears and eyes to perk up and, and to ask a little bit more. And that's how the word independent slipped right into your pitch. It wasn't there a couple of weeks ago, right? Always there. <laughs> so um, first, a very simple, easy question. So you're not scared of the word clean room because some vendors in the space try to say, we're not a clean room, we're a data collaboration platform uh, or something along those lines. But clean room's a clean room, right? No, I'm, I'm not afraid of it. Again, the industry has to latch onto something. I think it was a really fast, way that they did it, especially if you think of the origin of Data Cleanroom, which kind of started within Google and Ads Data Hub. But for me, it's whatever gets the message out there. And the most important thing is on the use cases and the outcome. And so if you have to call it Data Cleanroom, that's fine. I think the thing that gets tricky, and we've talked a lot about this with clients and with prospects, is just when the technology, one of these things is not like the other. And so I think you have kind of just four different groups of technology that sort of fit into this clean room bucket. And I just think they're very different. They're very different in business model. They're very different in assets. They're very different into how they fit in. You know, whether you're a legacy CRM and data services provider, whether you are, you know, a cloud infrastructure layer, we are neither of those two things. And so I think when people come to us and they they sort of assume you know, we operate a certain way and then you kind of have to go through that education. I think that's when there becomes friction with the terminology of data clean rooms. But, right. you know, for me, we can educate on that. And that's one of the challenges of a composable solution because uh, the vendors don't always fit into very neat buckets. And then it's up to the customer to compose the solution, which might not be yeah, as straightforward. I, I embrace the the art of what I call NA, which is not applicable. So if we get an RFP, I empower our teams all the time. Like NA, it's not us. And that's <laughs> fine. Like I think it's really important for us to be really true to what we are, to be crystal clear about what we aren't, to partner effectively when we need to. And I think that's worked really well for us. On that, what what are like the most common or maybe even like your favorite use cases of data clean rooms? That's a great question. I mean, Insights is very hot right now. So Insights, I think, is the most overlooked use case. So I'll park that for a second and return to it. I think for me, it's seeing the next generation of 
products in market. So most of our clients don't sort of talk about, oh, I'm just working with InfoSum because they're a data cleaner. They talk about their own products. They put their spin on it. They put their brand on it. And the two sort of areas that I think we've been really successful is with advanced TV partners. So we work with every major broadcaster in the UK. We work with a lot of broadcasters in the US. But they don't talk about clean rooms. They talk about their products. And so all it is, is it's reserving certain inventory types and audiences to, you know, be matched against whoever their partner is in. It could be one, it could be two brands for collaboration and then to push to activation. That's a very straightforward use case. What I like about the evolution of that is that now there's new flavors of it for certain verticals. And so I see, you know, some of the greatest CTV partners of ours are, you know, diving into commerce media and retail media by finding a really great retail partner and sort of pulling in those data and insights. And so we've seen that with both Channel 4 and ITV. It's incredibly performant for CPG. And I think the evolution of that basic product has also just been the different flavors of measurement. And so whether that's incrementality, whether that's reach and frequency, whether that's attribution, now to take it back to insight, I think everyone assumes I adopt a data clean room, I must have a treasure trove of data and don't necessarily think of this collaboration infrastructure as I only have a slice of an understanding of my consumer and I need to then partner to pull everything together. And I think that in terms of insights where, you know, you could be a CPG that really understands your salty snackers and all you really want to do is understand those salty snackers and whether they like diet beverages or zero beverages and really be able to tie those together. So I see a lot more, you know, I don't like the phrase data poor, but those who are really starting to build out their first party data utilize the technology to form formidable partnerships and do so quickly and test and learn. And so I think one of the differences in the U.S. market, because it's so fragmented with different flavors of identity and identity vendors and data providers that still persist, we partner really effectively with those identity vendors. And so we give them infrastructure that's modern. We give them a route to very, very quickly connect and find new clients. And for us, if we have two very great partners, so say we have a CTV provider and we have a brand and we have a retailer, they're all coming together to do a great collaboration, but they all don't have the same key. We kind of pull in identity vendors. And so I think those are some of the insights and the identity piece are probably the two I don't hear enough about. Right. Planning, activation, measurement, you hear a lot about that's very performant, that's very impactful, but that was impactful in 2021. I think... One use case that comes up a lot is where you have a really big mismatch in the data assets between the two parties that want to collaborate. So you have one, let's say, a salty snack provider who has a pretty minimal data footprint, but it's really important, versus a media partner who may know everyone who uses their app or watches their programs on a on a uh, AVOD kind of system, and they want to be able to find out where are those salty snack consumers, what are they watching, or what are they viewing, what are they doing. Also, uh, you know, in CTV, uh, let's talk about that for a moment. So it seems to me like CTV is a special case because almost everyone who is providing those services has a login. So they know who their users are and they are very skittish about providing any of that data through through the wires, through hashed emails over over RTB and things like that for regulatory reasons or for other reasons. Is, is that what you're saying, that there's kind of a sweet spot there to experiment with some of these things? 
Yeah, it's a sweet spot there to experiment, not only for the fact that they, to your point, they have a data asset, that data asset has proven to drive CPMs for them. You know, there there needs to be some route to fund these very expensive streaming services, of which I have many subscriptions. Right. <laughs> and I think that this really helped that. I would say one of the challenges that I think some of our CTV clients have come to us on is think this the the sort of measurement conundrum and the you know what currency is the, the greatest currency and right. everyone's been shouting at the upfronts that it has to be outcomes based and there's a new data set that I need to test I think with our technology we just recently launched at the start of this year but we've been testing like live in production for the past five months it feels like old news for me new news for the market it's got private path and really this is the evolution of our technology where um, and a hugely requested capability, especially from CTV and especially from data providers. And the easiest way to kind of dumb it down for all audiences is, is it, it's replacing crosswalks. And so I think as you have this surgeons and plurium, you measure with providers. And again, I'm not the sort of selector, the kingmaker of which one reigns supreme, you know, in the year 2023 or the year 2024 or beyond. But the ability for you to have a more protected and in real time use of sort of what crosswalks used to do. Because as you know, crosswalks were often high cost, take a lot of resources. And most importantly, they necessitated that data owners hand over control. And often you're handing over control to a company that has their own data solutions in market that use it to profile that run their own data marketplaces. And so aren't clean rooms effectively like a productized version of crosswalks? Like crosswalks are sort of informal. You need a special agreement. You didn't know where the data was going. Clean room just kind of is a productized crosswalk. I don't dislike that. I I think one of the biggest differences and what we haven't been able to see, or at least the feedback we get, most clean room environments, in order to maintain the standards of privacy and security, you can't extend and extract some of those insights outside. And when you think about measurement in particular, where you're working with a measurement provider, and they need to layer on their own machine learning models and their own resources. And so you effectively need to have that match extract out. That's really the hurdle that we overcame. And it's in a way where you're not forced to centralize the data and you're not exposing any sort of persistent identity in order to do that. But I think clean rooms 1.0, it's like all the the juice and the magic happens in the clean room. Think of private path as an ability to do advanced enrichment and advanced measurement outside of the screen room, so, which again is important when you have resources and things um, where you want to be able to, you know, take away those learnings and to test with a variety of measurement providers. So Private Path is a product of yours. I'm not that familiar with it. Can you just give me like the quick elevator pitch? What is it? Yeah. Replaces crosswalks, easiest way. Um, <laughs> okay. The core innovation is it patented synthetic ID generation capabilities. And so it's point in time. So the IDs are temporary. They're unique to each collaboration. So if company A collaborates with company B, you get a distinct synthetic ID. And if company A then partners with company C, they'll also get a different synthetic ID. And so even if company A and B collaborate again, they'll receive a different synthetic ID once more. And so kind of that point in time element of it is critical. It's also important that it's common. So exporting the same identifier from different bunkers, which is our technology, generates a consistent synthetic ID across exports from various parties, and then it's irreversible. And so 
all of these sort of flavors of the evolution again i don't i don't look at the productized clean room 1.0 as oh that's just a productized crosswalk because again you wouldn't have an ability to understand those insights outside of the clean room right it enables organizations to collaborate with any number of partners use first party data and in particular measurement has sort of been the most active use case we launched it with pulp ncs experience arcana we're working with a lot of other data providers and then Vizio, Samsung and others on the CTV side have also been early testers. So I want to ask about just clean rooms as a movement, not necessarily about your company, because there's there's kind of this feeling, this vibe in the industry that we're in the trough of disillusionment, that like if you went back two years, people were, you know, you guys did a huge fundraise. There was clean rooms coming out of the woodwork left and right. Now, a couple have been acquired, and there's just this feeling like maybe it's not going to be a multi-billion dollar category. Maybe it's going to be an add-on to other people's categories. Do you want to refute that or accept it? I think it's what I said at the, at the start, which is in terms of disillusionment, I, I, I guess I, I disagree. I think the proof is in sort of the growth that we've seen. Obviously, there's some public growth around other companies that is out there in terms of the adoption. I do think, and I think Terry Kawaja said this, that, you know, when GDPR came, everyone waited until the 11th hour. I think with cookie deprecation, I ran into someone at CES and they're like, we're doing a 40-day plan to like really cement how we're going to address <laughs> cookies going away. It's like, and I won't expose that company, but for sort of the business that they're in is fairly horrifying. And so I don't disagree that I think certain markets have sort of clinged on to inertia. And what I mean by that, have sort of just assumed that the old way of collaborating, of sharing data, that new identifiers that really look and feel a lot like cookies are going to be the solve. And as a result, I think it, it questions or puts into question whether data clean rooms or data collaboration infrastructure is needed. I feel like we have this added advantage because we started in the UK and in Europe where you can kind of a little bit see the future. And that doesn't mean that I'm predicting that there's federal privacy legislation any day soon. What I mean by that is what I'm seeing in the U.S. is just companies full stop not wanting to expose or share their data. Right. Let me ask you a question. Do you think yeah. what percentage of the Fortune 500 do you think currently have a clean room provider and or will in the next five years? In the next five years for Fortune 500, so long as there's a data asset, so long as they have some level of marketing, we can get into use cases outside of marketing. But I would say a bulk majority. I think that this is going to be a critical part of the stack. Now, pause. Our mission is to ensure that we're doing better and re-architecting the way that data has been connected fairly carelessly to power more effective marketing. And the way that I look at sort of the future of InfoSum and, and to your point on sort of fundraise, like we're really lucky. We fundraised, we had the right amount, we have had successful growth. And then maybe more than anything, we've had a very responsible leadership team and credit to Brian at the helm where we've just responsibly managed the business, which is all you can do to sort of control your own destiny. But on that mission, if the mission is best accomplished with a partner as a part of something greater, you know, we look at everything through the lens of what's best for our clients, what's best for our employees, what's best for our investors. And then we tie that to the context of the mission. And so I, I think in that context, to your sort of 
point, which is disillusionment, which for me is a no, but could this be a part of something? You know, I, I, I think that that's always sort of in, you know, open to however we succeed the sure. best. Yeah, and I think so. I wanted to bring up the uh, the news from last week. So uh, we had you booked months in advance. So it's just coincidental yeah. that there was the biggest news in clean rooms in in a year. I thought it was the Raven, <laughs> the Ravens, and their run, their streak, the AFC Championship, uh, the Jason Kelsey looking... uh, shirt off thing, situation. Exactly. Hoping to see that next week in Baltimore. All right. So Live Ram Habu, obviously direct competitor of yours. Exit, you know, you could argue it was a great exit because of the multiple or it's a disappointing exit because it was so early and they didn't have a lot of revenue, two sides of the same coin. But really what I want to ask you about is the strategic rationale of an identity provider having a clean room versus an independent, because that was really LiveRamp's whole pitch about their clean room was that it's based around the spine they have so that they can match better. So what's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, important to say I'm thrilled for the team at Apu. There's really great people there. So it's obviously an exciting time for them. And you read the press releases and everyone seems excited. So I'm happy if <laughs> if they're happy. And to your point on, you know, valuation and, you know, again, however you want to look at it, I, I do think it's exciting for the market by way of multiple, the value placed on this category of technology. To me on live ramp. It's not surprising to me to see LiveRamp requiring something. We've seen them do this before. And frankly, over the past two years, they've shifted their positioning to, frankly, reposition their tech to now be referenced as data collaboration platform. So acquiring Habu, which back to sort of what we talked about earlier, fits under this banner, this moniker of clean room technology. It makes sense to me. However, their core technology is not and has not been suited to a future grounded in privacy and decentralized data. And I suppose the challenge from a technology standpoint, and, and maybe what I would bring into question is... Sorry, sorry you said Habu's or LiveRamps when you said their technologies? LiveRamps for infrastructure live okay. is not... That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay, I want to clarify. Still, still nice shot fired. Yeah, <laughs> shots fired. But I would say from a technology standpoint, Habu is not data clean room infrastructure it's a data orchestration layer. And so that is me that means that it's meant to connect other infrastructure providers, most notably Snowflake, who frankly was an early investor. And obviously we saw that they recently chose Samuva as its preferred orchestration layer via, you know, call it an aqua hire acquisition. It's not clear to me, if I'm being honest, how Habu and Liver will integrate. But what's absolutely clear is Habu will likely be a front end to LiveRoom's legacy centralized infrastructure and their managed service offering, which I also think is really important because that's a huge component of their business. So it's not a tie-up consistent, in my opinion, with all those trends we just talked about, the secular trends, customer data decentralization, of re-architecting the way that we had typically, you know, moved and shared data around, the deprecation of persistent identifiers, privacy by default technology, they're going to use it to further its proprietary identity products. Yeah. And you said that earlier, and it's going to feed its data marketplace where it earns the majority of its revenue. So remind I, me not to it, get on your bad side because 
That was like, you just shot the person seven times in the back while smiling and uh, saying nice things about them. <laughs> he said, he said, not, it's a, Hub is not really a data clean room. Uh, they were bought so they could be a front end to, to LiveRAM's legacy technology that's not privacy forward. And uh, meanwhile, their main partner, Snowflake, has a different partner that they really care about. So the whole thing is a house of cards. Is that a good summary of what you said? Yeah, but I, I, the final on, on independent, it's going to distinguish info some in the market. Now, I'm not, I'm not silly or stupid. Like, LiveRare has a huge marketing horsepower. They're going to, you know, in the short term, be very noisy. They're going to very much make it seem like independents are, aren't in a good spot. And they'll probably get a short-term lift from that energy that went into the deal. Long-term, you're either re-architecting or you're not. You're either privacy-enhancing technology or you're not. And I think I've just always been really, really confident in that arena and I'm really confident how we've been managing the business. So I'm really excited for 2024. And again, at the start of this, like I'm, I'm very happy for the team at Habu who's built a very great data orchestration layer. And I think from all signs are very happy with the exit, which is awesome. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, I want to remind everyone that there is a full interview between myself and Brian Lesser that goes into a lot of depth on the InfoSum product. It's about a year old, so there may be some little bits that are not up to date. Also, the Habu interview and the Live Ramp interview remain free on Architecture TV. We also have Optimal, which everyone forgets about, the nice folks up in Canada. Um, so if you want to learn about clean rooms, you really can't beat the uh, Architecture TV archives. Okay. With that, let's take a quick break and we'll go through news of the week. All right, news of the week. Eric, you want to tee this one off with Arena Group? I know how much you love Arena Group. Yes, this has now become my thing. So, Act One, the five hour energy CEO, uh, his company uh, acquires the Arena Group, which uh, has a licensing deal for Sports Illustrated. Act Two, he cleans house with a couple of names that are familiar to listeners of this pod, namely Ross Levinson, Andrew Kraft. There's some controversy over like some AI content commerce, but I don't think that was really the real issue after all. I think there was a, a ton going on there in terms of the, the financials and the stability. Act 2.5 was some weirdness of the five-hour energy guy stepping down, some management consultants stepping in to run the company. Jim Heckman and Brock Pierce making a play to buy out the stock to control it because Jim Heckman used to be Sports Illustrated CEO. And now we've got Act 3. Act 3 is not good. So I'm hoping that there's like a happy ending to this thing after all, though, you know, Act 3 is typically the end. The Arena Group missed a payment to authentic brands which own Sports Illustrated and fired uh, all of the uh, Sports Illustrated employees. All. So all the employees. All the employees. So there's a couple of management consultants running the company. I'm sure that this isn't over. I'm sure there's going to be something that happens, but this is just a disaster, like absolute disaster. And I, I can't stop. I can't keep covering this because it's too traumatic. Too to traumatic. All right. Venerable brand, Sports Illustrated. I think that firing really shocked people. I'm sure the management consultants are trying to figure out how to do 12 swimsuit issues a year that would maximize revenue. But I, I think the real, I think what's going to happen with SI is that authentic brands is going to retake control and try to license it to somebody else. 
that's the only way. They're not a media organization. I don't think they're going to, you know, just reboot it and hire a lot of people. There needs to be another another firm to, to license it. And I think the good news is somebody's going to want to have that deal. Yeah. And Andrew Kraft was here three weeks ago or whatever to talk about it. He had some good insights there. Also, I think his Instagram got hacked because Andrew just tried to sell me some Bitcoin earlier this today, uh, which was not the best. Oh, no, that's his that's his new. Uh, I wouldn't t- I couldn't tell if it was real or totally not. Totally kidding. <laughs> so, Andrew, I'm not interested in buying totally your Bitcoin, kidding. but otherwise. We're still good buddies. All right. Uh, next on the list. So Netflix bought some rights to the WWE for $5 billion. So they're going to be showing the wrestling content starting, I think, in 2025. I think Peter Kafka covered this in Business Insiders, had a very nice article covering it where he said, this really goes hand in hand with the investment in advertising. Netflix has historically said they won't bid on sports. They're not a sports company, which is kind of a funny joke because the question is, is this real sports or not? So it really is on the line. But the important point is that you can only do sports if you can monetize it with ads because otherwise the legacy networks have a huge advantage to buying the sports. So I know, is this the tip of the iceberg? Is this are sports finally moving 100% to streaming? Lauren, do you want to put your POV on this one? Well, I didn't mention this earlier, but I think sports from a data collaboration standpoint is a huge area. Clean room so angle first, on the WWE. Of Clean course. Angle. Males 18 to 49, of course. It, yeah, I mean, it has everything to do with demographics. It has everything to do with, you know, eyeballs and sort of connecting across different mediums. And so to me, it's not a surprise. I actually think it's really exciting to... You know, I, I'm kind of over the just like wait and see and follow sort of like the Netflix count of, you know, s- subscribers. So to sort of see innovative and strategic partnerships and, you know, I, what I'm really hoping to see is like really impactful ad formats at scale. So that's sort of what my eyes and ears are, you know, if there's anyone who can do that, I think that's Netflix. And I think, you know, why is CTV not that great to be totally cynical a lot of it's just the ad format because you're just trying to kind of rip and replace a lot of what we had with with linear and not really look to innovate. And so I think there's a lot more that you can do with with gaming assets in that vein. We also uh, kind of brushed over, I think, two weeks ago when Amazon purchased the local sports rights. So they purchased the Diamond Group, a huge yeah. amount of local sports I don't know. I whenever I say something about TV, someone tells me I'm wrong. So I'm not I'm not an expert in TV. But it, it really feels like if you think five, ten years from now, that these sports rights are all going to be owned by the big tech companies and that the legacy media companies are gonna have a hard time surviving. Yeah. I'd like to remind you that my prediction, one of my predictions for twenty twenty four was that Netflix lets it rip, my exact language. I think they're letting it rip, number one. Number two, this is like, I mean, this is exciting. Like WWE is big. TKO, the the parent company of WWE plus UFC. I mean, it's a it's a large company and it's a 10-year deal. So Netflix is like making a real investment here. And how could this not be like their foray into like live ad monetization? So I think this is this is super exciting. Um, the other thing about Netflix is uh they got a big subscriber bump and they beat their own estimates in terms of subscribers. They are, uh, I think, eliminating the lowest price tier of the the subs, like the eleven ninety nine. I think it's fully going. So again, I think that they're showing all of the right direction in terms of prioritizing ad sales, doing things that will give them more 
uh, unique things to sell from an ad perspective. And again, I stand by my prediction. There, there's a long discussion about this on the All In pod, and I think they really missed the point. Yeah. Uh, they were talking all about how these streaming businesses aren't good because they have such high churn. But I think they're missing the point, which is that consumers are willing to pay for these things. And Netflix on the top of the list of consumers streaming choices can now sort of start stepping on the neck of the ones down downstream. And Netflix turns into a really good business and maybe Paramount Plus doesn't. Uh, I have to ask, though, Eric, I'm going to guess you were a WWE fan growing up. Of course. Yeah. Of like, course. It's not uh, even a question, yesterday, right? <laughs> yeah. The, the, 20, the 23rd. Um, so yesterday was the 40th anniversary of Hulk Hogan uh, beating Andre the Giant to become the champion. Of course. Uh, thus setting into motion basically my entire life. Do you have a little shrine to uh, to Hulk Hogan somewhere in your basement or something like that? <laughs> No comment. No comment. All right. Um, all right. So let's. Uh, we're tracking. Two thousand twenty-four is going to be the year of ID chaos. So we're tracking this pretty carefully. There was a good article in Digiday about early results. These are very early, very non-scientific results. But the article has two two studies. Uh, the first was a company called TVTropes.org. Um, very you know, premium publisher, obviously, uh, they saw a 200% improvement in CPMs when they did a UID2 test versus Safari. And so that probably is not unexpected when you have those hashed IDs. It's going to be a lot more valuable than anonymous Safari. But I thought the more interesting data point was they said they only have 5% of their user base with emails. So this is a website that probably does a lot of search and social traffic. 95% of the time it's anonymous, but the 5% there where they have the emails, Huge improvement. And the second data point was Unwind Media, which is a bunch of gaming sites, like casual gaming, solitaire stuff. They did a test where they saw a 40 to 50% improvement when deterministic IDs were present versus when only cookies were present. So this was not a Safari test. This was saying, like, if the ID was present, they saw 40 to 50% improvement. I think a lot of folks are waiting on these sort of results. And I, I really – maybe there's a question for Lauren. Like, you know, I feel like a lot of publishers are just going to try to power through this and just see what happens as opposed to being very, like, forward-thinking and having some sort of grand plan for what to do. What, what's your thought on that? I see both. I see publishers. I, I, I like to cite Axel Springer, who I think is continuing to focus on better ways to collect and manage data and to have that relationship with their audience across really great publications. But is absolutely seeing the writing on the wall and saw the writing on the wall really early. And even with, you know, smaller, to your point, authenticated bases or smaller amount of emails, still sees a four times boost in cookie scale and is seeing higher CPMs. And I think it's seeing all the results. I can send you a specific case study on it. And it's leading to more specific like campaign measurement flavors that they've never been able to offer before. So I think that there's going to continue to be a lot of cynicism on who to blame. And I, I think it's completely irrelevant. I think I think you're in control of your own destiny. I think if there's any sector that should know that, it's publishing. So I, I think that's maybe what's like more painful is when you sort of see everyone wait and see and and then, you know, and then go through sort of those phases and say, well, you know, we'll blame. And 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 I can even cite like there have been publishers who were about to adopt data collaboration infrastructure. And then when Google moved the needle on the date, flat out said, well, we're good. Like, all the things that we have working are good. And so I will definitely never say that it didn't impact our business, that they moved the date and that it caused a lot of chaos and that it caused 
you know, everyone to sort of, you know, run in and say that their sort of solution or their new identity solves for this. I think every company that has a relationship with their consumer just needs to maintain control. I think there's a lot of great ways to do that. I think there's some playbooks that people can follow. And then I think starting to, you know, share testing and resolve is is helpful because it shows that it's motivating and probably it unlocks budgets and resources for people to get to it. So if a publisher or media company is both adopting clean room solutions and adopting alternative IDs like UID2, is that that sounds compatible to me because what it means is they just have to collect as much data as possible first party. Is that is that how you think about it? Yeah, I think alternative IDs can be great. I think alternative IDs don't necessarily guarantee protection within a bid stream. And again, there's so many different flavors of it. So I would say doing both, like if you just did one and you just adopted alternative IDs, I don't really think you're doing what you should be doing to reinvent the way that this came before it. And so I, I definitely think both is is sort of the recommendation. And if you're going to just do one, then I would focus more on, okay, I don't have those relationships. Who can I partner with? What enrichment data provider? How can publishers come together? We see that trend more often in Europe and a willingness to do that. We see it talked about in the US, especially within TV, and we don't see action. But I think that's more important than than simply just embracing an alternative ID. Could you put a percentage on like the top US publishers that use clean rooms actively? Or like customers, like whatever metric and you don't need to reveal any any like infosome data. I'm just curious, like how many have adopted and if, if there's like real growth ahead for for what is like an well, extremely logical use case. Well, Live Room's a public company and they call themselves a clean room. So I think this is like public data <laughs> you could pull from them. So by their definition of clean room or data collaboration, and they have all of the publishers across the world. So um, I guess that's everyone. No, my honest answer, I, I think, Ari, you said it earlier, which is, those who have had that direct relationship have been the first starters. And so I think across television, it's nearly 100%. Right. Across those who have a streaming application, in terms of just at least testing, that does not mean, by the way, that that is the de facto way that they were. In the US, the way I've seen people adopt is they kind of continue doing things the old way, they adopt at the same time, and then the percentage moving over towards purely using data collaboration infrastructure like InfoSum just continues to increase over time. But at the start, they're like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it's not legal, I'm good. Right. So, you know, which is frustrating to me, but, you know, then that's the challenge accepted. Like, <laughs> I'll work hard to prove the performance. I'll work hard to make it easier for them. And, you know, I think that has always been the the worst dirty secret about cleaners is everyone imagines it's terribly hard. And frankly, most of those people started with Snowflake. And again, I don't mean to sh- fire shots, but like Snowflake is, I was a client of Snowflake uh, once upon a time. It's a lovely product. That's not built for marketers. The credits, man. How do you know how many credits you're going to use? That's that's like, oh my God, what's my bill going to be this month? It's difficult. It's complex. I'm, you know, I'm, like I ran data strategy, but I was a power business user. I wasn't a data scientist and it's not easy. And so if that's the route that you started cleanrooms, you probably are nervous about cleanrooms and you think that this is incredibly complex, advanced course. And it just not. I mean, I've had a client in November sign, get, 
you know, data bunkered and collaborated in under 48 hours. Yeah. Under 48 hours. And I have multiple examples that are in a week's time and two weeks time. And so a huge part of my job is to re-educate and to sort of help people get over the PTSD of like whatever they adopted before. Right. And, and I think to the point about TV, you know, so two of the most high profile cleaner initiatives are like NBCU and, and Disney. Uh, these big companies have the data and they have the privacy uh, wariness, legal wariness about doing anything improper. Um, and so uh, they're in a really good position to be adopting, whereas like a midtail solitaire type site maybe is with 5% registered users, maybe not in the market for a complex um, a investment, more in the market for quick wins and, and some revenue hits. I also want to kind of flip the conversation about uh, when we're talking about publishers and IDs, because we talked about the two case studies where the IDs really helped, to the flip side, which is people using IDs in ways they shouldn't. So last week, we didn't have time. There was a Scott Messer article in Ad Exchanger called The Precipice of or Peril of Publishers and Ad Tech. It's a really complex title. I, uh, but the point being, it's a really good article. And one of the things he brings up in that article is cheating, uh, which is that publishers, there's a quote, publishers are calling bid enrichment vendors to look up the user and return any associated ID, and the enrichment vendor is likely using a probabilistic match. So when we're talking about deterministic IDs like UID2, what if you're using a probabilistic match to find out the person's email? What if it's not really that user. Um, and then uh, I got some back channel from some industry experts who didn't really want to put their name on this, which was saying that publishers are using IP address to uh, fingerprint the user, and then they have a, have a hash of that IP with any other ID they've seen previously, and suddenly you're sending a bunch of IDs in the bidstream, which are not actually that user. They're just estimated to be that user, and the buyer thinks it's deterministic. I know that's a lot of language there, but I just want to kind of bring this up. This is this is kind of makes sense. I would do this if I was a publisher. You know, I don't have the email. I could guess the email and then shove it through the RTB chain and make more money. This could be a problem. That's I guess this is the main thing I would say. Either one of you want to throw in your hat on this one? No. Okay. So I just I'll throw in my hat. Okay. Last subject. Um, so I I gave this as a promo at the beginning. There's an excellent, uh, if I may say so, interview that I did with uh, Andrew Casali about Index. Um, so Index has a new product that's basically similar to Xander's Curate or Critio's uh, Media Grid, where they solve the problem of how do you sell data with inventory without becoming an ad network. So if you have some very valuable data of some kind, let's say a predicted attention score on a given piece of inventory, in the past, one of the ways you'd go to market would be that you would make publisher deals and then you'd turn into an ad network and you'd sell like high engagement inventory. And no one liked that because you have to have additional sellers.json entries, text entries, you have a billing problem, and who knows if you could trust them. So in Index's new system called Marketplaces, you can now just append uh, that data to someone else's inventory. And the publisher is still the seller. The publisher and the advertiser still have the same relationships, but there's a deal ID that is kind of guaranteed by this third party. So I really like this. I think curation is really important. And, you know, Xander deserves a lot of credit because they were the innovator here. But it's great to see Index kind of jumping on the bandwagon. Uh, Lauren, were you involved in all that while you were uh, a Xanderite? Yeah, curate, I think it was maybe before it was like polished and branded, but had been going on while we were still at Xander. And I think it was also like an extent, there was community, which sort of started off, then Curate, which was sort of more, I think, of the feedback that came in across brands and publishers. And I think it's been incredibly performant. 
So yeah. I agree with you, though. Kudos to index exchange and kudos to people, you know, seeing what's working out in market and, and finding a way to embrace and adopt it and hopefully standardize it, make it that much easier for both publishers and buyers. Is this still an emergent category or, you know, is this like taking down, you know, significant, let's say significant as double digit percentages of um, of programmatic? I think it's pretty emergent given that Xander doesn't have a lot of market share as an SSP and they've been the leader. So if you take a percentage of Xander, it's going to be pretty small. Got it. Okay. So Lauren, uh, you know, uh, if you've listened to this podcast, you know, I'm obsessed with naming things. So, um, when it was AppNexus, the people who work there were called AppNexians. What did the Xanderites call themselves? That's very funny. They didn't call themselves anything. So, <laughs> okay. Which is it's, sad and unfortunately, maybe why Microsoft advertising is Microsoft advertising and not Xander. No, it was never, I think there was always talks about like, well, we have to be something, you know, that's the only way people will identify. And and I, I do remember a little bit of debate. Xanderian, Xanderarian was like one. <laughs> that's tough. Which you can't even say, yeah, which tough. is why that didn't land. At InfoSum, it's easy. We're, we're InfoSummers. And so Just and rolls we off. also do InfoSummer Friday and we do InfoSummits. And so uh, InfoSummits, that, that's easy. That's like marketing 101 right there. That's good. Yeah. Right. I like it. Um, all right. So I think that that does it for this episode. Lauren Wetzel, thank you so much for being here. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Go Ravens. <laughs> Go Ravens. And Eric, always a pleasure. You got it. Thank you for subscribing to Marketecture. New interviews are added every week at Marketecture.tv and your favorite podcasting app.